2: Mixed race identity differs significantly from monoracial identities. If you are the white son of a white Scottish, you are a white Scot in Scotland, Brazil, in Nigeria, Kenya, and America. But if you are the son of a white Scottish and a black Jamaican, then in Scotland, you are something else. In Jamaica, you are something else. And in America, you are something else. And this presents opportunities and challenges. It's not feeling a sense of control over how you're perceived. So if I walk into a Nigerian village, I will be perceived as whitish, even though I grew up in Nigeria. And when I got to Poland, They'd call me all those nasty names, despite the fact my mom was Polish. Identity is something kids pick up quite quickly, which identities to emphasize. There's challenges involved, you know, there's some bad, but there's also some good. So I have to take both. Hi, I'm Remy Adekoya, and I'm a modern minority.
3: but we're no one's model minority.
0: This is a show about all of you, for all of us.
3: On today's show, we're talking to Remy Atakoya, a Polish-Nigerian living in the United Kingdom. He's the author of Biracial Britain: A Different Way of Looking at Race, a book we discovered a few months ago. Remy is the former political editor of the Warsaw Business Journal. He's written for Foreign Affairs, Politico, and a lot of well-known Polish newspapers. He's also provided socio-political commentary analysis for the BBC, for Foreign Policy, Stratfor, and Radio France International, among many others. And he's currently conducting PhD research on identity politics. But as a biracial man, he's really spent some time talking to other people of biracial backgrounds. And I don't know,
0: Sharon, this is just.
3: It was like, wow, perfect guest for
0: the show. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And also perfect guest for you and I. I feel like I learned so much from him and I selfishly was very pleased that he wanted to talk to us because- As a parent of biracial children, there's a lot that I'm learning on my own and discovering as they're growing up and and discovering as the world is changing right in front of us. And so I feel like we had the expert on biracial identity, but also biracial relationships here with us today. And it was great to hear his insights on all of those things. Yeah. And this is a long one, but promise you, stick
3: with it. It gets really fun towards the end. And we think you're going to enjoy getting to hear from our new friend, Remy. Remy, thanks for coming on the pod. It's really great to have you here, man. Thanks for having me. Well, so Remy, a lot of folks have read your work and read about you. So in a way, you're kind of infamous. But I guess the first question
2: I want to know is, where are you from? (laughs) A good question. So I was born in Nigeria to a Nigerian father and a Polish mother. I grew up in Nigeria, spent the first 17 years of my life in Nigeria, went to primary school in Nigeria, went to secondary school in Nigeria. And so Nigeria is definitely a place, the place you grew up in You can leave the place, but the place never leaves you. So there's definitely a lot of Nigeria in me. And my wife is Nigerian. So I check Nigeria. I read Nigerian news every day, find out what's going on there. Obviously, I'm in contact with my wife's family. So I'm very aware of everything that's going on in Nigeria. And so Nigeria is definitely a big part of my life. That's for sure. And uh, like I said earlier, aside Nigeria, when I, I left Nigeria when I was 17. So I moved to Warsaw, Poland, where my mom was from, lived there for 19 years, went to university there, worked there um, for a while, like I say, and then moved to the UK in 2015. So I've lived in the UK for six years now. So yeah, so that's how that looks.
3: It's funny, I get into an argument with an old friend of mine, when we used to backpack in different parts of the, the world, we'd run into fellow travelers, and they'd ask where I was from, and this is a, child, a childhood friend I grew up with in Alabama that I went to college with, and at the time he was living in Hawaii, and he would always say, I'm from Alabama, and mm. I would always say, I'm from New York, and my friend from Alabama would get so mad at me, because he's like, what, you're just like disowning? So it's it's interesting that you answer that question with your heritage, where you were born, versus Sheffield. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely. I've definitely been, I don't think there'll ever come a time when I'll feel British. I came here a bit you know, too late in my life. If I'd come here at maybe 10 or 11, then perhaps there might you know, come a time when I'll, I'd feel British. I don't think there'll ever come a time when I feel British, even though I feel quite comfortable here. I plan to settle down here, or I've settled down here actually, and can easily imagine myself here for the next 20, 30 years, or maybe even more. But I don't think I'll ever feel British, no. And and and, and that's not something I think is should be surprising or unnecessary a problem. What brought you there? So I got married in 2014. My wife is Nigerian and I knew I couldn't imagine her being able to settle down and live with me in Poland, which was where I lived then back in 2014. So Poland can be a pretty racist place. I could somehow manage to fit in there because my mom was Polish. You know, I could speak the language. I understood the culture. I understood the society. I understood the history. You know, Poland is a country where history really plays a big role. Invaded in World War II by Adolf Hitler, then 50 years under Soviet communism, Soviet imposed communism. And so history really plays a big a, a big part in understanding Poles. And there was also a, a, a period when for 123 years, Poland was wiped off the face of the map. And so there's specific national complexes which exist in Poland, which I understood. And so I could, like I say, get by there and I understood where people were coming from, even though very often I might not have liked the way people behaved. But I couldn't really imagine my wife being able to fit in there and, and have a good time there. And because my wife had lived in Britain for five years a while ago when she studied here, I knew she knew Britain, she felt comfortable in Britain. And so we both decided it'd probably be a better idea for us to both simply move to Britain and settle down here.
3: I want to unpack so much of that. You said Poland is racist.
2: And yes. you know yeah. what? People, I, so, people can definitely be very can, racist. Can be, sure. Exactly. And, yeah.
3: and we all can, to be very clear. Yeah. I think sure. in anywhere in this world, we can mm-hmm. experience that. Even in India, among Indians, right? Of people course. are racist. I, I can be racist. You can be mm-hmm. racist. We can of all course. have those darker tones. But I guess the question is, what, what did you experience? What did you see in Poland as a Nigerian-born man, with a Polish parent living in the country, what were those experiences and stories about that transition point? Because grew up in Nigeria, now you find mm. yourself in Poland. Can you talk about that period, that transitory period of your life, and maybe what informed you realizing the racism that did exist in Poland?
2: Yeah, of course. So unfortunately for me, I'd say, um, I came to Poland at a time when it was really rare to see black people or brown-skinned people on the streets of Poland. So I came to Poland, like I say, when I finished secondary school in Nigeria. I was 17. And So mid-1990s, Poland was just six years after communism. Communism collapsed in 1989. Of course, during the whole communist period, it was a very closed country where very few foreigners came into the country. It was behind the iron wall. And so generally, people were not used to seeing foreigners on the streets and definitely not used to seeing black people. So the kinds of things I experienced late 1990s, Poland is back crude racism we're talking about, which used to go on in, in the UK, in the 60s, 70s. So people basically calling you names on the street to your face. Okay. Wow. Yes, calling you all, all the sorts of names we know. Black people get called straight to your face. This was how mm-hmm. it was late 1990s Poland. So there was nothing subtle about it. Then things, and of course, people are asking you all sorts of really racist questions about oh, when they oh, where are you from? Oh, from Africa. People might even make a joke or something like oh, so what did you grow up on a tree there or something? Oh, ha ha ha! I'm just kidding that kind of stuff. Things then improved somewhat in the early 2000s when Poland joined the EU and the country really started opening up more. So Poland joined the European Union in 2004. And so when you know, it joined, you know, Poles started traveling to Western Europe, more foreigners started coming into Poland, including black and brown-skinned MF foreigners. Poland became a richer country, so it's a much, much richer country today than it was when I moved there in in the mid-late 90s. And so, of course, that means there's more foreigners who come in. So people are also more relaxed. People are generally happier with their lives now than they were. When I got to Poland in the mid-1990s, economics is also important. People were generally quite pissed off with their lives in Poland. Capitalist reforms were going very slowly. There was a lot of unemployment in the country. People were really earning... Very, very small amounts of money. So I'll give you an example. So I have a brother with same father, different moms, but his mom was also Polish. She's Mm. significantly older than me. And when I got to Poland, I lived with him. He was an architect and he was earning the equivalent of $200 a month at the time. That was his salary. So these were the kinds of salaries which professionals were earning in Poland at the period Mm. I got there. So so like I say, it wasn't a very funky um, economic climate, so that even increased the aggression in the air and the nastiness in the air. So those are the kinds of things which I experienced there, which like I said, it's improved um, somewhat um, right now, but there's still a lot of... Bad things that can happen there, and and right now there's a government which is pretty yeah, yeah. strongly right wing, and yep. they encourage and more than a wink, I'd say, to xenophobia and that nationalism and yes, yeah. we are poles and Poland above all and things like that. And so again, it's definitely not as bad now as it was when I got there, even with this government. But of course, it's still a far cry from say Britain where I live now, which is significantly more tolerant <laughs> and more used to foreigners.
3: It's it's all relative, right? But when you were there in your teen years in the 90s, my observation of Nigerian communities, at least in America and the UK, is there are like Indian American communities, Chinese American communities, there's enclaves of it. You go to church or temple together, you hang out, some of your friends are that way. So when you arrived, were you surrounded by other Nigerian immigrants or biracial Nigerian kids? Or were there other non-white poles that you were spending your time with or were you the only Nigerian kid in school (laughs) or right like are playing football at the park or whatever? Like what was the minority makeup of the communities that you were in? So community
2: is a really stretch. All of us (laughs) could more or less fit into a phone booth. Um, uh, Those of us of African heritage, of course, I'm exaggerating a little bit here. And so, but there was very few of us, definitely. Okay. So when I got there, I immediately had a group of people around me, thanks to my older brother who I spoke about. So he had African friends there who had been living there, people who had studied in Poland. Some of them Mm -hmm. had married and met often Polish ladies and and had families there. So yes, so there was that group of people I was immediately surrounded by in my social life. But they were usually people who were significantly older than me. My brother's uh, 12 years older than me. So they were rather from his age group. If we're talking about my age group, I didn't really have anybody, you know, who looked like me. So I studied law at the University of Warsaw. I was essentially—ah no—there was one other mixed race uh, boy who was in the faculty with me. He had actually grown up in Poland. He had never even been to Africa. I think his dad was from Mauritius originally. He had grown up in Poland, so essentially he was Polish in everything but skin color. So he had a a skin shade like mine. But I was definitely the only person from Africa in in my department. So when it came to school, I was essentially, I'd be the only one in class who wasn't white, basically.
3: Yeah, and this is like a fairly obvious question. And it's it's actually less about the the race and more about like the cultural day-to-day. What were some of the lifestyle observations that you found different between your childhood and your teen years in Nigeria and your early adulthood in, in Poland. What were the things that you realized were different and better, but also different and worse
2: beyond the obvious things of race? Huh, so that's a good question. So th- definitely a Polish culture is significantly different from Nigerian culture, even though Nigeria has various cultures uh, within it. So definitely there's differences there. There's similarities. I'm just thinking out loud now, actually. There's similarities in the sense of a focus on family. So Poles are actually quite strongly um, focused on family. So that was similar to the Nigerian context. If it comes to things which were different, so unfortunately, there's simple stuff. It's simple, but it's really important stuff in everyday life, like in in Nigeria for instance we had power cuts all the time okay power cuts were complete standard so essentially the electricity goes off oh power um, and that's like yes. a normal thing you learn to live with unfortunately yeah, yeah. Same AMA. in India, yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. So, so stuff like that. But then in Poland, even though it was just six years having emerged from communism, there was nothing like that. Twenty-four hours of electricity, that stuff. Believe me, if you're somebody who's grown up in a place where every day you have these power cuts, that stuff makes a difference. You're like, oh yeah, it's not that bad here and stuff. This is really cool. So that's a simple thing which I just thought of. What else? Not, not various things. Even though, like I said, things were rough in Poland then economically, still the most people were still better off than what I had seen most people, the economic condition of most people in Nigeria. So Nigeria, unfortunately, is a place where there's a tiny, tiny, tiny group of extremely rich people. Then there's a, you know, very small middle class, perhaps five to maximum eight percent of the population. And essentially, the remaining 80, 90% of people, they're basically suffering. Getting three square meals a day is a problem for most people. And so there wasn't that poverty in Poland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this was also another difference, which even though this is considered actually one of the poorer countries in Europe at the moment, but still people seem so much better off than they are back home. So those are some of the things which struck me immediately. What
0: did you want to be when you grew up?
2: So when I was really um, small, so my earliest memory, the first job I remember wanting to do, I wanted to be a vet. Mm. Uh, yeah, I wanted to be a vet because I really loved animals. And this is something I know I got from my mom. So I was really close to my mom growing up, and my mom really, really loved animals. We always had um, uh, dogs at home, and she'd play with them and imbibed in me a love of dogs. And I remember telling her that, oh, mom, when I grow up, um, I want to be a vet because I want to uh, help animals. I don't know when in my life that ambition left me, but it did at, at one point, definitely, somewhere in, I don't remember when I was 17, 18. So, yeah, so if that's the first thing I've I, about becoming <laughs>
0: that's great my son he's seven and he loves animals as well oh. and he wants to be a vet or a zoologist
2: one day oh you see <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah so you spoke about your mom how did your parents meet
2: ah uh, this that's this is a story my mom always i um, uh, like to tell so my mom was a journalist in poland so this is 1960s poland my dad had gotten a scholarship from nigeria so he arrived mm-hmm. in poland 1963 to study architecture in Warsaw Uh I met my mom, I think, 67 it was. And my mom always likes to recall that meeting because she's like, the first time I met your dad, he's making a lot of noise here. But the first time I met <laughs> your dad, I was sitting and he was standing because I was a pretty top shot journalist in Poland right there back then and i was yeah. interviewing him because my dad was the president of the African Students Association or something or, or something of the sort um, in Poland at the time and like i said my mom was a, a quite a, a rising journalist then in Poland and she's like first meeting i sat down and your dad stood up and now he's playing the boss so she so that, so that's how they met so she interviewed him um, in his role and then and that's how they hooked up essentially and started dating and eventually got married. And I, I can't even imagine what my mom told me. People used to uh, racial insults at them, and especially at her you know, mm-hmm. on the streets of on the streets of Poland. We're talking late 1960s Poland, for God's sake. Sure. But somehow they got through that. People, the stuff people have gone through in history. Sometimes, that's why sometimes I find it hard to complain, honestly speaking, because I think about what people like my parents went through. Right. And I'm like, my goodness, this is nothing. You know, I mean, obviously, from the other side, we shouldn't look at it that way. Totally. But I, I find myself doing that sometimes. And I'm just thinking of what people went through in the past. And I know this is something um, Obama used to do a lot when people would bring up things during his campaign. I know I strayed a bit here. When people would bring up things, I remember during his 2008 campaign and say, oh, how do you feel about people insinuating that Americans might not be ready for a Black American president? And he'd essentially say things, oh, oh, oh there's people saying mean stuff about you on the internet. What do you think about that? And he'd say that there used to be a time when a lot worse things happened to people than other people yeah. calling them names. And so I'm, really gonna fo- I'm not really going to focus on that. So I have a little bit of that too. I constantly compare in that way.
3: Well, and, and that actually, it's a great segue into... The reason we want to talk to you is like you've Mm. written and you've spoken about Mm. biracial identity and Mm. you've obviously lived that Sharon and I do and don't in a very different way because our children are biracial, right? Mm. Sharon is married to a black man with two little boys. I'm Indian married to a Chinese American woman with two little kids that are Asian, but mixed Asian and, and we're living in America, right? Mm. Which is increasing. It's always been multi-ethnic but Mm. it's becoming more biracial. And Mm -hmm. you've had this observation. It's been happening, honestly, a little longer or faster. The trend is accelerating in the UK, and you obviously are a product of that in Poland. And Obama is too. The funniest thing, Mm -hmm. people called him our first Black president, but Mm. he's also half-white. And Mm -hmm. you read a lot of articles, and some of the coverage that you've gotten is... It depends what societal context you're in and what people want to call you. I I think Mm -hmm. I read an article where someone like you, a half Nigerian, Mm -hmm. you're considered black when you're in Poland and the UK, but when you're in Nigeria, you might be considered not African.
2: (laughs) Whiteish, yes, yeah, whiteish, yes.
3: (laughs) So what did did the fascination with biracial, other than obviously it's your identity and who you Mm. are, but the pursuit of understanding and exploring it, like, At what point did you say, I'm going to stop doing lawyerly things, and I really want to explore this? Like, What made you want to go study and examine this more?
2: I guess it's something I'd always thought about off and on. So clearly, I've always had that feeling of being the odd one out in the room. so different. And I I felt that, obviously, in Nigeria, Nigeria is a monoracial society. Essentially, virtually everyone is Black. And so obviously, I stood out for being mixed race, for having a white mom. And that difference is communicated to you pretty early on in life. And it was definitely communicated to me pretty early on in life. But it's not like I spent my days thinking about my identity in Nigeria. Not really, but it's something definitely off and on. I had that feeling of difference. That's Mm -hmm. for sure. And then when I moved to Poland, then I started thinking about the racial aspects of it, obviously, because of the crude racism I told you I experienced there. So I started thinking, so how does this racial thing really work? What's all this about? So what are all these racial hierarchies about? How are they established? How are they sustained? What keeps this going on? What's really going on here? Why is it that a group of Polish guys might see me, just me alone, walking on the streets? Obviously, I can't be any threat to them if there's just me, and there's four or five of them. And why do they feel the need to hurl an insult at me? What are they really getting from this? Because obviously, they must be getting something from this psychologically, or else they wouldn't be doing it. So so what are they really getting from this? So I started thinking about about those kinds of things. And then definitely when I came to Britain, Britain is a multiracial country, not as much definitely as the US, but the closest thing to the US in that context here in Europe. And so race is a big thing here and identity. And these are big debates which are going on here. And so I was able to explore that more closely, being here in Britain, working here and being able to write about that here.
3: My mom's family, my mom was a refugee from Africa to England, mm. and so I spent a lot of my childhood visiting family in England, and the impression I got, again, I grew up in the American South, very segregated amongst mm. the races, white, black, brown, mm. and when I went to England, you you say we are more racially mixed in America, and you are probably mm. right, statistically, mm. mm-hmm. but I feel we are more segregated in our country because, just honestly, we have more space, and mm-hmm. the UK from a population density standpoint, is much more compact. So you can have segregation, whole neighborhoods of Indian people, but you can't walk down the block and not interact with someone of a different race. Like You're going to be bumping into each other more in the UK. And so I think the idea of biracial identity or less segregation, there is segregation in the UK, but I've always felt there's a more mixed culture in the UK. Would you
2: I'm not sure what, what your observation is of the two countries. No, I think you make an excellent point. I, I never actually thought about that specific point which you raise here. It's the thing we don't really think about space. Is it an extremely large country or a small country? Yeah, the UK is a pretty small country like you say. So it's actually hard physically to segregate yourself from from other racial groups and only move move around your own. There are some places in the UK like that, where the population is really like 98% white or something, but that's rare. And so like you say, it's more difficult physically to even separate yourself from others here definitely than it is in the US. I think generally speaking, of course, very broadly and generalizing hugely here, I think the British are generally different kind of people from Americans in the sense that that British politeness stereotype, it is to a significant extent true in the sense that
3: <laughs> it's it's like the southern politeness it's a bless your heart i'm being polite to your face <laughs>
2: It's, it's, uh, y- yes, well, it's probably a little bit different from, from the Southern one, but there is a civility, or let's call it there, when people tend to speak to each other and are at least civil with them, they, they might go home and, and, and say other things. But at least in that public interaction, people tend to be civil. So that's definitely been my experience. So I think um, uh, British people also, this might be changing a bit, but I think are also slightly more chill about the whole race thing. Obviously, in America, the Brits were involved in the slave trade, but there weren't a huge number of slaves living in Britain. Britain here. So in America, that was there. So there's that. It's stark. It's like in your face. African-Americans who live, they're direct descendants of people who were brought, you know, in chains. So I think Mm -hmm. the historical tensions there, it's more raw. Yeah. I think it's a bit more raw in America, the race thing. Here, this intensity of antipathy, one way or the other, Yeah, either from, say, the minority population towards the white population or from the white population towards the minority population. I think it's somewhat more subdued. I don't think the emotions are as intense as I perceive them to be in the U.S.
3: Can you explain for our audience, you described how majority of Black people arrived in our country, in America, Mm. across all the different African diasporas existing in the U.K. and even in Europe, what is that migration? Like how did those generations of Africans arrive on the European shores?
2: So that was mostly colonial era migration. So it yeah. was usually um, from the period when so so really intense started 20th century. Yeah, which is much later than to than to the US. So the really intense migration started 20th century from early 20th century moving on and then after the Second World War it really really grew. So essentially people who came yeah, from British colonies so from Countries like Nigeria, immigration-seeking opportunity. So by choice, so people who came from Nigeria, Ghana, West Africa, and and some of the other places where the the Brits had colonies, India, of course, um, a huge colony from India, from Pakistan, you know, and essentially from those parts of especially um, Southeast Asia, which were controlled by the British. So it it was usually like that. So there's a voluntary element to it, which simply did not exist, if we're talking the case of African-Americans specifically coming to the U.S.,
3: And I I think what's interesting about that is, and this is just my observation of the difference in Indian society in the U.K. and the U.S. is these communities come, and honestly, socioeconomically, Asian communities in the U.K. were not as well off as they were, quote-unquote, model minorities in the U.S. Mm. But you had these kind of like – you had less systemic issues holding them back, so it only takes a couple of generations to see upward mobility across communities, at least with Asians – And it's interesting to see it's a mixed bag with Africans in Europe.
2: Definitely. So if we're talking about UK specifically, uh, actually the Indian population, so the British Indian population uh, here has done the best out of all socioeconomically, out of all the minority groups here. So for instance, median Indian household wealth is essentially identical to median white household wealth. Something around 270,000 pounds. Wow. Now, if we go to Black Caribbean median household wealth, it Mm -hmm. drops to 89,000 pounds. Wow. If we go to Black African median household wealth, it drops to around, if I recall correctly, 34,000, 36,000 pounds, something like that. And now, of course, the differences between, for instance, the Caribbean. Median household wealth and Black African. A lot of that has to do with actually the time these groups came. So the Caribbeans tended to come here. Mm. So many came fifties, sixties. You know when houses were cheap because much of that household wealth is actually basically house ownership. Mm. So, Generational um, wealth. Uh, Generational wealth. So many Caribbeans mm. who moved here 50s, 60s were able to buy houses outright or short mortgage in the 60s and 70s when it was still affordable. And so they have some of that wealth. But actually, the Black African communities, many often tended to come a bit later than the Black Caribbean um, uh, communities and so are much poorer. But the Indians, British Indians, like I say, virtual identical wealth. And if it comes to Income earned right now, actually, British Indians are outdoing British whites. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Indians, you know, don't joke, don't joke with Indians. <laughs> Indians they're outdoing the um, uh, British whites now like, when it comes to when it comes to income. So, so they've really done very well. And it's fascinating. I remember I was interviewing a mixed Indian German ethnically, but actually he grew up here in the UK. I interviewed him for my book. And, and this is somebody who I think he was born in the mid-60s, if I recall uh, correctly. And so he remembers very well the 70s, the mm-hmm. 80s when there used to be you know, race riots here yeah, in the UK yeah. in some neighborhoods. And, and he told me, he said what? He said the Indians as a community were always focused on two things, family and commerce. They weren't interested mm-hmm. in politics. They weren't interested mm-hmm. in contesting the system, basically family, commerce. And he says as a result of that, The Indians actually did well economically. And he says all the routes we broke out of the political contestation, it was always led by black intellectual leaders and people within the black community. And that, of course, there's various reasons for why the frustrations within that community were specifically stronger and more intense. But I found it very interesting speaking to him as someone who, like I say, grew up 1970s, 80s Britain, and grew up within that Indian community. And and perhaps some of the reasons he gave to a significant extent responsible for some of the huge success of British Indians here.
3: I mean, I hear some of that argument. I do. uh, But the thing you have to be careful about Mm. Or are we, is can that argument be weaponized? Of, oh, well, the Indians put their heads down and pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. Sure, there are. I would. I, I cannot. I can only explain what I see in the United States. Mm. But there is s- systemic built into our systems racism mm. that Black people experience that Asians do not. And mm-hmm. what's interesting is again because of a similar migration pattern in the UK, one could argue, okay, well, the Indians put their heads down, didn't get involved in race politics, but I I feel like. Again, observationally, even though it was the same immigration pattern in the UK, Black people weren't as accepted into the society. Like, there was, I feel like there's more systemic stuff. So, when we do talk about median incomes, like, there were less barriers. Like, literally, in this country, my parents were able to buy a house, but Black mm. families were not be able to mm. buy the same houses and the same properties of mm-hmm. generational advantages. Mm-hmm. Do those systemic things exist across racial lines in the UK? Yeah.
2: So definitely, if we're talking the race issue, for me, it's pretty clear there is definitely a racial hierarchy, which has been in place for a couple of hundred years now. And that racial hierarchy positions white people at the top, Black people at the bottom, and everyone else somewhere in between. Okay? So definitely the start of that hierarchy places Indians in a better position than black people. And so definitely those are issues which do exist. And I think we should be able to talk about all these issues together as a whole. And I agree with you that there, of course, could be people who will try to weaponize something like that and say, oh, but. Exactly like you see. Look at the Indians. They kept their heads down, worked hard, and they've done so well. If, if these black folk just wouldn't complain so much all the time, they probably yeah. also have done better. And of course, there are going to be people that are going to make those kinds of arguments. Well, it's, but the for classic me,
3: mod- it's the classic model minority, it's myth, the
2: right? the model minority um, argument, definitely. And But for me, uh, when discussing race, I try to discuss it as I perceive things. Mm-hmm without worrying about, oh, but if I say this, this white racist guy might weaponize that and turn it into something <laughs> yeah. else, etc. Because if I did that, I'd end up actually not really saying everything I think. Or not being honest in some of my views or not touching some issues because oh, like I if I say X, racist Y is going to weaponize that and yeah, use yeah. That. No, I can't live that I'm not gonna live my life thinking about oh what's this racist or that racist going to say about this. I can but only I mean, speak if we about did that
3: if we did that we wouldn't have this podcast and you wouldn't have had it, a book,
2: right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I can only speak about the issues as I see them, as fairly as possible as as I can, and speak about everything and let's put everything out there on the table. And there's always going to be arguments for this and against that and pros here and cons there, but we should talk about this stuff and we shouldn't feel constrained by what some racists might use it to do.
0: Yep. And so you've curated a collection of interviews in your book. And I want to go back to that because so much of that is fascinating to Raman and myself. We're Mm. doing the same thing on this show where we're talking to people, learning about their experience. What are some things you've learned from those interviews overall about people from two different backgrounds?
2: So definitely what I learned, because when we talk about mixed race people, even in that term, the Mm -hmm. focus is on the fact of two quote-unquote races having mixed. Right. But what is actually most interesting in mixed race people is the mixture of cultures they grow up with at home. And that is really what makes mixed race people different and Unique in their own various ways. The fact that, so someone like me, I grew up in a home with a Nigerian dad and a Polish mom. Now, Nigeria and Poland are pretty much two different cultural universes. Okay. And my parents had different views of the world. And this, their different worldviews didn't stem from the fact that my dad had black skin color and my mom had white skin color. They stemmed from the fact that my dad grew up in Nigeria and my mom grew up in Poland, in those different cultures. And so I'd listen to my dad's cultural worldview, how he viewed the world, which was shaped to a significant extent by the culture he grew up in. You know, I'd agree with him on some things, I'd disagree with him on some things. And I'd listen to my mom and she'd explain the world from her cultural worldview. And I'd agree with some ways she looked at the world and I disagree with some ways she looked at the world. But I was always able to, and and I think this is a strength of mine really, was always able to assess both, I don't know, fairly, perhaps is not the word, but I I could pick up. I I never felt one of them was always right all of the time or always wrong all of the time. I was always able to see the nuances and take them like that.
0: Sure. So you you cherry-picked your favorite oh, yeah. parts
2: of each Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, that, so that's maybe the, <laughs> so maybe I've always been good at like cherry picking, like, aha, I like this aspect of Nigerian right. culture. This, right. this, 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 I like. This, 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 I don't like. Yes, I like this aspect of Polish, wider Eastern European or European culture. This, 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 this I like. That, that, that I don't like. Yes, mm-hmm. I, I always did that pretty effortlessly.
0: <laughs> and did you notice that the people you interviewed were both doing the same things, but then, how does that manifest into how they present themselves? Because as someone who Mm. is a parent of biracial children, Mm. right? Like I can only recognize it from my own perspective. So like I – and I use cherry pick because I see my kids doing it. Like Mm. sometimes they'll represent themselves as being a little more Chinese. And then Mm -hmm. in other contexts, they'll represent themselves as being a little more Caribbean. And it's very fluid. It's very interesting watching them. Like they can – in one sense, identify with, well, I guess it's more religious, but like on, on my, my husband's side of the family is very Catholic mm. and I didn't grow up Catholic at all. So in one moment, they are literally saying grace before they eat. And mm. then they're also using chopsticks as they're eating dumplings, right? So mm-hmm. it's like this really, it's very, and, and that's just their reality. That's all they know of who they are. And and I wonder sometimes when they approach the world, how the world sees that in them. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, it does. And of course, the mixed race identity is extremely contextual. And in this, it differs significantly from monoracial identities. So Mm -hmm. if you are the white son of a white Scottish father and white Scottish mother, you are a white Scot in Scotland, in Brazil, in Nigeria, in Kenya and in America. End Mm -hmm. of story. Yeah. But if you are the son of a white Scottish man and a black Jamaican woman, Then, of course, in Scotland, you are something else. In Jamaica, you are something else. And in America, you are something else. Mm. And this is one thing which strongly characterizes the mixed race identity and presents with it opportunities and problems or challenges, let's call it. Now, the challenges, of course, can be that. And this is something a lot of mixed race people complain to me about. It's not feeling a sense of control over how you're perceived. Because you're perceived differently by different people in different places. And you don't seem to have any control over that. So if I walk into a Nigerian village now, I will essentially be perceived as Mm whitish. The term kids will call me, there's a term in Nigerian slang, uh, Nigerian pidgin English called oimbo. Oimbo essentially means white person. And I know that's what kids would call me. And I have no control over that. Yeah. Yeah. Even though I grew up in Nigeria, Nigerian father, et cetera, et cetera, I have no control over that. And then of course, when I got to Poland, they'd call me all those nasty names, which they used to call black people. And I had no control over that, despite the fact my mom was Polish, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And so this is something which definitely bugs mixed race people. What are the opportunities it offers? Like you say, identity is something human beings generally, I'd say, try to behave in ways they think will be beneficial to them in one way or the other. Be it if they're adults materially or psychologically or emotionally. So kids pick up quite quickly, which of my identities is beneficial to emphasize in this room at this moment. So like you say, for instance, if I was to go to, when I visit Nigeria now, I'd emphasize more my Nigerian side, Mm -hmm. my Nigerian identity my Nigerian father, my Nigerian roots, because that will probably be the most beneficial identity for me to emphasize there in Nigeria. If I go to Poland now and I'm speaking with Polish people, I might decide to emphasize my Polish roots, that I had a Polish mom, that I understand Polish culture, that I speak Polish well, etc. And that probably Mm -hmm. might be more beneficial to me there. Mm -hmm. Here in the UK, it's beneficial for me to emphasize that I have that mix that Polish-Nigerian mix, because that's interesting for people here. They're like, what? Polish-Nigerian? How did that happen? Because that's not a very common mix here in the UK. People are used to hearing different mix, but it's rare to find that Eastern European plus African Mm. mix. So people here, they find it interesting. If I had a white English mom and a Nigerian dad, I'd be pretty boring to a lot of people here because they've heard that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm telling you, they've, they've heard that loads of time. That's nothing new. But Polish mom, Nigerian dad? They always ask, how did that happen? Where did your parents meet? So I, I use that to keep people interested in me. That's it. So I think speaking about your kids, they will pick up on this pretty quickly and know which identities to emphasize where and why not use what you've got to make your life as easy as possible when you can. And you take the bad with the good. That's just it. That's how I've learned yeah. to accept my mixed race identity. There's challenges yeah. involved in it. So there's some bad, but there's also some good. So I have to take both. I can't say, oh, no, I only want the good, but no, 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 no. I don't want anything bad. Unfortunately, that's not the way life works.
3: Right. Well, the world's going to throw bad shit at you. And exactly. so you might as well take advantage of the, the few good things or the whatever. And again, they're almost like psychological ninja skill powers that yes. you have.
2: yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Look at how, go back again to my favorite politician of all time, Obama, the way he was able to use that to his advantage in his campaigns, yeah? So he was able to go to a church in Selma, Alabama, and rile up the whole, all the, the black congregation and and everybody's you know screaming his name because he knew exactly what to say to them. George Bush wouldn't have known what to say to them. Maybe Bill Clinton, because he often used to be jo- jokingly referred <laughs> first to first as the first president. That, right. Exactly. <laughs> right. So maybe Bill Clinton might have pulled it off, but definitely not to the extent Barack Obama was able to do that. And he was also able to go to Iowa and speak to an all virtually all white room and also get them riled up and jumping screaming his name. So that's definitely a big plus. And that is wow. something which mixed race people. We tend to have that predisposition because of the fact that we are forced to navigate these various identities and speak to different audiences. W- what's the j- main job of a politician? The main job of a politician is to know how to speak to different audiences, different economic audiences yeah yep. definitely mm-hmm. different geographical audiences but also different racial audiences and so being mixed race actually can be extremely helpful in that
0: have you received any pushback on that notion either the book overall or the notion that or having access to multiple cultures is an advantage
2: not really Not really. I think um, uh, something that definitely exists, and I haven't heard this specifically thrown at me, but I know it's something that exists out there within the minority communities. It's that sometimes Mm -hmm. I know monoracial minorities, so for example, people who are full Black or or, or full Asian, uh, can Mm not be, how do I put this? A little bit like, uh uh-huh, so you guys think you can just cherry pick and be a little bit of this and a little bit of that. We don't get to have that choice.
3: Yeah.
0: Or I've even heard... Folks, when I first met my husband, I had pushback from my own family. And I Mm. think the thought was that I was diluting the culture.
2: So there can be definitely um, reactions like that. But I think generally the direction the world is going in, I think most people do see it as an advantage, someone mm-hmm. being able to navigate various cultures and, like I say, speak to various audiences, there can be a feeling, not the kind you are talking about, which you got from your side, like you say, but there can be definitely, I know, those kinds of resentful, let's put it straight, ML feelings amongst monoracial minorities, thinking that, oh, mixed race people, like we have it too easy, sort of. Well, yeah, no, people. I
3: think it's, uh, it's what we call not in my backyardism, right? Mm. No matter how progressive you are, Mm. Again, this is an American observation, mm-hmm. so I can only speak to that identity. Yeah. But no matter, my parents voted for Clinton, super progressive. Mm. But when my sister decided to marry a non-Indian person, mm. there were questions. It was like, oh, wow, ah. uh, this is happening to me. And, and again, I think the shock, it, it subsides eventually, right? Mm-hmm. Kids help with that. Sharon and I have talked mm. a lot about that. But mm-hmm. I, I think it is the... Oh, I'm totally cool. I'm totally woke. I'm totally progressive Mm. until you're confronted with it in your own life. And it challenges you. And I think that's an okay thing to surface that. Otherwise, it's just like a secret bias that doesn't exist and never gets exposed.
2: Oh, definitely. Oh, if you're speaking now of how monoracial families can react to one of their kids getting married to someone from a different... (laughs) Oh, definitely 100%. (laughs) So I, I wrote in the book, for instance, generally Nigerian parents... Average Nigerian parent or most generally don't like the idea of their kids, for instance, marrying white people. The initial reaction from all the people I know, Nigerians who've gone home and told their parents, oh, I'm getting married to a white English girl. The initial reaction is usually quite negative. Like, oh, why can't you marry a Nigerian girl? And it takes often time for them to come to the idea. They generally don't like it. But I wrote in the book that it's not actually, and, and my father's family was very unhappy that my dad married a white woman. And they showed my mom that very clearly. And wow. often, you know, yeah, they showed her that very clearly. They weren't happy with it. And so I tried to also think about this and analyze it. Now, okay, uh, were they not happy with this? So, okay, on a racial basis that they felt my mom was a r- their racial inferior? No, it wasn't on the basis that they felt my mom was their racial inferior. It was on the basis of cultural nationalism. So it was basically, their thoughts is that, ah, okay, our son now, who is from the Yoruba ethnic group in Nigeria, so Nigeria is divided into various ethnic groups, mm-hmm, who is mm-hmm. from the Yoruba, he's going to marry this white woman. So, okay, what's going to happen to the kids? Exactly. Yes. That was the yes. argument my parents used. Yes. Are you thinking about the kids? Right. The kids, they're not going to be brought up in Yoruba culture because probably the, the mom is going to want to bring them up in her culture. Obviously, the, the assumption in Nigeria would be that the mother is going to have the stronger influence on bringing up the child. So essentially, mm-hmm. the mother aha, so So this child, Remy, this little Remy that's going to be born now, he's going to be brought up by his mom, probably in Polish culture. We essentially are losing the child. So the group is losing the child essentially. Mm. yeah, We're losing Mm. one of our own potential new members. okay? Yeah, And so definitely that that was was a very strong element. But like I said, I I tried to think about it and reason it from their point of view. And I get it from their point of view, because Mm -hmm. actually they were right, honestly speaking, because I don't have the ties to the Yoruba ethnic group that I would if I'd been the son of of my dad and a Yoruba woman. I don't Mm. really speak the language that well. Mm. If I'm really being honest about it, I'm not that terribly interested in Yoruba culture okay mm-hmm. so i am a loss to the group if you think about yeah. it in those terms i am a loss <laughs> to the group yes i am
3: a oh, loss Dick. to the group you know what, what, what i find fascinating and again this is just my american perspective like our hmm. entire country is race and nationality are almost different things whereas everywhere else you go in the world it's almost like nationality first right hmm. germany is made of a bunch of german people again never mind immigration this whole country even the the original white guys who took everything from the Native Americans, over time it became mixed race, half Polish, half Italian, mm-hmm. half Irish, etc. So it's always been a mixed race bag where the unifying nationality is the country that we settle in. Now, to be clear, mm. the guys who came here before might not be accepting to the new guys coming in, mm-hmm. but eventually it all just washes out and you get accepted. But the kids thing—it's uh, the kids struggle in this country. And, and Sharon, I'm very curious about your perspective, but mm. my sister married a black guy and they have two kids and everyone's cool. Everyone's happy now. Right. Mm. But one of the original arguments from my parents and they like the guy, right? Mm-hmm. He's, he's a great father, great son-in-law, great brother-in-law, but it was the kids are going to be perceived as black in America. Mm-hmm. Do you understand what you are putting these kids into? And yeah. so I understand that argument, but then I think, well, then the world needs to get over it and we need to start working on solving that because we have these kids now. Like, you can't just bury your head in the sand. And my my kid's not going to be expected to find a half Indian, half Chinese person. I don't think Sharon's kids are going to be expected to find a half Chinese, half Caribbean person.
0: Just kidding. (laughs) 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 Or they're going to marry Chinese wives. (laughs) Mm.
2: (laughs) You see? Do you have kids, Remy? Yes, I have a five-month and three-week-old daughter. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's so precious. Yeah. Has it change your so- perspective? It's made me think even more about this whole race issues and how that's going to affect her in mm-hmm. the sense. So I'll, I'll give you an example. So generally, because of the fact that I had that experience of living in Poland, I don't, for instance, have that because I've, I've spoken to quite a couple of, of, of British um, ethnic minorities here who feel mm-hmm. uncomfortable if they're the only black or brown person in a room full of white mm-hmm. people. -hmm. I don't. Okay, really? Because for nineteen, dude, for nineteen years, I lived only black dude in
3: the room. Right,
2: I I was the only black guy in the room. I lived in Poland, a country which is like ninety nine point eight percent white or something like that. So I'm used to that, and honestly speaking, it doesn't bug me. I don't have to see a black or brown face to feel comfortable. I don't personally, and Mm -hmm. so that's me. But a couple of weeks ago, we started looking for nurseries, sure. and we went mm. to this school, and the neighborhood we live in, Sheffield, it's very strongly white. Mm. Yep. Very few black or brown faces. And
0: what is your daughter's racial makeup?
2: So because... she's mixed race, yeah. My wife is full Nigerian. I'm Polish-Nigerian. So if we're thinking fractions, she's technically three-quarters she's... Nigerian. Yeah. And yeah. Three-quarter, exactly, yep. I'm Polish, yeah. So, so yeah, so we went to this nursery. And they they walked us through the place and showed us, et cetera, et cetera. And and afterwards, when we're going back home with my wife, we're both like, hmm, the kids there are white. Wow. Um, (laughs) Been there, brother. Been there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How is she going to feel? Um, And then my wife was like, oh, I, I wanted to ask the lady who was showing us around, are there any ethnic minority kids there? Perhaps we didn't see them that day. Or are there any teachers, ethnic minority, but I didn't also want to make her feel uncomfortable because she was such a nice lady. And we started <laughs> talking about this. And this previously, like I say, for me personally, it's not a problem. I wouldn't have thought even about it. But I noticed mm-hmm. that I did think about it because I was thinking of my daughter. And I was simply thinking, how is she going to feel? Perhaps it might make no difference to her. I'm in nursery school. I, I, I I can't even imagine it might make no difference so because kids are that small. They don't start thinking about race and things like that. But perhaps then it might. So I started thinking about these things and actually thinking, ah, probably we should ask them if perhaps there's some other ethnic minority kids. This is something we should think about based on how my daughter might feel. So, so this is something which I could say surprised me because, like I say personally, it's no big deal for me being in a room full of white people. But I did think, how, how will my daughter feel? I hope this won't affect her negatively in any way. I did think about that.
0: And did you decide to enroll her?
2: We we don't have to decide yet because we're thinking okay. she's not going to go to nursing school till she's, so she's at least a year old. So we have basically till early next year to make that decision. And, and they told us there's no list waiting or something. You can basically join any time. So we're, we're still thinking about it. And we probably will enroll her there. But it's something we thought about and, and are still thinking about. Yeah. It's,
0: yeah.
3: I just... I can relate so much to that because the neighborhood and the area we moved to a couple of years ago, going to daycares, nurseries, elementary schools, again, I'm comfortable. I grew up in a pretty segregated society with only 15 Indian families. But now, (laughs) I just think about it. It's about her perception. And I guess Mm -hmm. it's cliche to say, but kids change your perception on everything.
2: Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. You start to worry more. Yep brother yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, and
0: you want to create an environment around them that reflects your own ideals. It's interesting because I've moved out of New York, but when we were in New York, my kids were enrolled at the United Nations School, and mm. I intentionally chose that school because I wanted them to be surrounded by people of all races and all mm. cultures and every combination of those mm. things but in the most authentic way. Mm. And we were so fortunate that there was a school like that in our area. But Mm. now we're in LA and they're enrolled in a school where it is primarily white. And so Mm. my two kids look completely different, but Mm. also their life experiences have been very different. And as a parent, I'm very cognizant of that, of like, okay, I'm sending them out into the world and we're giving them as much as they can. Well, now can they're growing to... up
2: like Remy. They're comfortable in a room full right. of white people, right? <laughs> exactly. Right. And, and Sharon, if you don't mind me asking, mm-hmm. have they said anything to you indicating any sort of, I don't know, negative psychological effect of that of moving them to this new surrounding, which is predominantly white, like that?
0: They haven't said anything, but their closest friends are people mm. of color. And I haven't responded to that in any way. Like they can make any friends that they want, but I've noticed Mm. that the kids that come over for playdates, there haven't been a lot because of COVID, but the ones Mm. they're closer to are either of Asian or of Black descent. It's Mm. really interesting. And so Mm. they're naturally just gravitating towards people that also both look like them. But to your point, it could just be cultural connections that they're making as well. But
3: it could actually be the environment, right? It could be because they are surrounded by a non-diverse group most days, That is their like self, because I, 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 Sharon, I've noticed the same thing, actually mm. about your daughter. The, yeah, where the day mm. past, we're now in elementary school, but the daycare we ran for two years, very white in this area, <laughs> and the self selection of who she wants to have playdates with, or mm. when we go to a playground outside and which kids she just goes up to and starts talking to. I, I've mm,
2: noticed right. that. Right. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you a story. One of the people I interviewed um, for my book, I mean, he he grew up in in Wales. Mm-hmm. So Wales is much less um, uh, racially diverse than England. Yeah,
3: it's, it's like uh, the original white part of the world. <laughs> you know,
2: he, so he grew up in Wales, his dad was white English, but he grew up in Wales, and his mom' um, a Jamaican I'm um, a black Jamaican. And he told me he says, "Oh, I remember when I was in early primary school, and the first time I started thinking of myself as different, he said he'd noticed that there were two other ethnic minority kids in the class only, and he noticed anytime like the white kids wanted to look for him. They'd raise their head and look in the direction of the ethnic minority kids, expecting him to be with them. And he says, when they started doing this, I also started thinking, ah, so maybe I should be actually hanging out with the ethnic minority kids. And but he says, and this was ha- happened at a very young age, and, and and I found it fascinating. And he says that's essentially how I started hanging out with the ethnic minority kids because it was as the white kids expected I'd hang out with the ethnic minority kids. And mm. this this was happening to me maybe you know I don't like four five or something like that. So before any conscious, uh, majorly conscious, they just instinctively assumed that. And he says that's mm-hmm. how I started hanging out with the ethnic minority kids.
0: So interesting. I mm. I wish we had all day to talk to you. I feel like p- part of it is you coaching me on how to be a better parent of a (laughs) biracial
2: child. (laughs) One thing I can give you, if I can give you a tip, and this was, um, and this was told to me by a 17 year old who I I was, I, I wish I had been that wise when I was 17, who was also in the book and he was the son of an Indian father and Jamaican mother. Definitely a rarer Mm -hmm. mix um, uh, here Mm -hmm. in the UK. And he says that, oh, I think what was really important is that both my parents, one, none of them tried to create the idea in my head that their particular culture was actually better than the other one. Okay. Mm -hmm. So both the dad spoke very positively of Jamaican culture and the mom spoke very, very positively of the dad's Indian culture. Mm-hmm. And he says, so this means I never felt any pressure that I need to pick and choose here. or One of them wants me to pick and choose. He, another thing he said was very important. He said, my dad read a lot about my mom's Jamaican culture. And my mom read a lot about my dad's Indian culture. And mm-hmm. they were both teaching me about the other one's culture. And yeah. so created this environment in which I only wanted to learn more about both cultures, he says. Right. And he told me, a 17-year-old kid, he told me that I that he thinks the reason why interracial marriages sometimes don't work out is because, he says, people just meet, fall in love. And there was a term he put, just wing it. And he said, yeah. you can't just wing something like that. You really have to put work into it and learn about each other's cultures and create that right. environment where the kid, one, doesn't feel a pick-and-choose situation and also feels So both parents are very interested in each other's cultures. Both Mm -hmm. parents respect each other's cultures. This is really important. Both parents respect each other's cultures. And and I can basically have this both worlds here. And there's no major conflict to be had, really.
0: Yeah, that's a great tip.
3: Remy, I got a tip for you on how to sell Uh a bajillion more books. You should (laughs) change your Same book, but change the name to Biracial Britain, A Guide for Parents. To figure out how to look at race. <laughs> there you go. In the, yeah. the world the, the world is becoming increasingly so and I think you can mm-hmm. probably sense the reason Sharon and I just want to talk is like
4: mm-hmm. there's so
3: much anxiety and how do we figure out and how do yeah. we navigate this? And we're it's you have to be intentional, you have to be thoughtful, and you gotta improv and wing it at the same time. But yeah, I I just love the platform that you've you've done and you've built with this.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. And of course, just to if I can add something else, something which also I noticed clearly in the people I spoke to was that the kids who grew up in homes where there was a lot of love definitely are in a much better place today with both their mixed race identity and with everything else than the kids who seem to grow up in homes where that was lacking. And so where Mm -hmm. the children felt unconditional love from the parents really these are stronger people today. That's, that's yeah. the only way I can put it. Much better equipped to deal with the world and deal with all the challenges of the world, including navigating that mixed race identity. This was something I really picked up on. So, love really is absolutely key for a child's well being.
0: Oh, I love that. <laughs> okay, I have a question for you. Mm. If we were to bring you backed in time to mm. the moment that you had just moved from Nigeria to Poland. Mm. What is advice that you would give to your younger self at that moment?
2: It would be to read more on how this whole race business started in the first place, mm. to be able to understand why these hierarchies are out there And why people from racial group X look down on people from racial group Y, or vice versa. So to try and understand where all this is coming from, much better by reading about it and broadening my mind on it. That's something Mm -hmm. i definitely advise myself. I'd also advise myself to read books on general intergroup conflicts. Because if you actually read books on how groups, sometimes black-on-black groups or white-on-white groups uh, or ethnic groups who share the same skin color but live within a country, the conflicts between them, and how sometimes some of these mechanisms and hierarchies, which we have when we talk about racial groups, repeat themselves there. And you have group X saying that group Y, they're bad this way, that way you can't trust them, et cetera. And you have group Y saying, oh, group X, they're even worse, et cetera, et cetera. uh, To read about intergroup conflicts and understand that actually, really, this is a human flaw. It's a human failing. There are no inherently good Innocent racial groups. And of course, there are no inherently bad racial groups, there's human beings. There's human Mm -hmm. beings with all their flaws, with all their feelings of wanting to feel better than other people. And human beings realize that feeling in various ways. Some people will will want to feel better than others by saying, oh, I have more money than them. I have a better job than them. I'm better looking than them. I have a nicer Mm -hmm. car than them. And some will go the direction of saying, oh, well, I'm white and they're not. Oh, my ethnic group, we're smarter than their ethnic group. Oh, their ethnic group, they're lazier than us. But these are all strategies to realize that unfortunate human desire to feel better than and that's what it is yeah man
3: Uh, remy i like sharon i feel like i could talk to you for hours but (laughs) we're almost out of time so i don't know sharon we've covered a lot of ground do you think remy's ready for speed round
0: remy i think you're ready for speed round
3: okay that's the speed round (laughs) what is something about you that people don't ever expect
2: something about me that people don't ever expect. Hmm. I don't know if 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 this is fun enough that uh, people might not expect, you know, how much I love laying on the sofa watching a um, uh, series and, and doing nothing for days.
0: Perfect. <laughs> That's a perfect answer.
2: <laughs> and so related not, to especially
3: that. Especially you because know, like you're such an intense guy who's thinking through yeah. it. So I don't you don't strike me as the guy who would do that. <laughs>
2: oh no. yeah, lying on a sofa watching a um, uh, series. I, I I I can't do that for days.
0: That's perfect. And so related to that, what is either a movie, a television show, or even a book, but not your own,
2: mm-hmm.
0: with characters that you can relate to?
2: Oh, Game of Thrones. So I'm really like into studying why some people get power and are able to hold it. And even more importantly, why is it that some people accept other people having power over them and, and seem not to resist this or seem not to contest it or seem to even welcome these people having power over them. What is it? We talk about a lot of things. People say charisma. People say all sorts of things. But I've always been fascinated by that. That what is it that enables some people to be able to exert power over others, and those others to accept that? And so, like through Game of Thrones and, and, and series around power, have always fascinated me.
3: Most people say Game of Thrones because of the dragons and the zombies, but I like your exactly. answer
2: better. <laughs> no, no, me. It's all about power and control, man. Oh man. <laughs>
3: remy what is your favorite mom dish
2: shepherd's pie mm. all right is that a polish thing I thought that was a british one yeah that's
0: very british that's very so british it's
2: even irish actually um uh, but <laughs> shepherd's pie she, she used to make that i really like that from polish dishes bigos so there's a polish dish um, i made the cabbage based and um, a dish but there's you know meat thrown into there and all sorts of things thrown into there so bigos that was something i also really enjoyed um, uh, as a kid um, uh, a mom dish Interesting. Uh, Any Pole in America, any Polish American will know what Bigos is. Any Polish American who listens to this will know what Bigos is. (laughs) We have a huge Polish American population. (laughs) Huge huge demographic.
0: (laughs) What is your least favorite food? Lobster? Lobster? Yeah. What do you have against lobster? I don't know. Just it's um, a giant uh, bug. It's a giant just, bug. Just, just oh. a giant
2: bug. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> probably a lobster. Yeah, I, I definitely should <laughs> never order that.
3: I, I that agree, Remy. Shrimp? I think lobster is. I, I enjoy it, but it's overrated.
0: Mm. It's a giant what
3: bug.
0: Mm-hmm. How about shrimp? Do You feel the same way about shrimp? No, no. Different? I
2: like. I like shrimp. Prawns. I like actually. Interesting. So you see. So it's just one of those. Um, uh, one of those mind things.
0: Remy, who
3: is someone that. You would want to have a conversation with on a podcast,
2: uh, Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> Me How too. I know?
0: Yeah, let's work on that together. <laughs>
2: <laughs> definitely, um, uh, that would be uh, absolutely a um, uh, number one from living people. Definitely,
0: absolutely. And last question: What does being a modern minority mean to you?
2: I think it means being a minority who exists in a 21st century reality where actually we still are minorities, but there's much more of us if we're talking in Western societies. And so opportunities to our personalities are much bigger today than they used to be for minorities who lived in Western societies 20, 30, or 40, 50 years ago. So for me, a modern minority means someone, yeah, who is growing up in, a, and who is living, in, in, if we were talking about in the West, in a reality in which there's much more opportunities for us to express ourselves and be ourselves and chase that happiness, which we're all chasing. That's
3: beautiful, man. Well, Remy, That's a great I, answer.
2: Uh, I'm so glad we
3: heard about your book. We read your writing and you were gracious enough to come and challenge our thinking with everything you've observed and lived. So thanks so much, man.
2: Thank you. It was so great to have you. No problem. I really enjoyed it.
3: And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform.
0: Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something
3: to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom at modmypod.com.
0: You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you.
3: Now, here's a preview of our next episode. The most sinking feeling is like, whoa, that could have happened to me. So learning, I come from a community and a tradition and a history of people who stood up and fought back. who said, this is bullshit. We need to fight for justice for our community. It totally lit a fire under me. When the lights went up, that's the moment that I became Asian American because I truly believe it's an identity you opt into. You have to choose to become Asian American. That was a moment where I went from just being a Korean kid from Silicon Valley to like, oh, I belong to this community and I want that to mean something. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And
0: I'm still Sharon Lee-Tony.
3: Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
0: We'll talk to you soon.
3: Before you go, we want to share something really interesting. Friend of the pod, Jay Veraldi, is the founder of Animalia and has a fantastic podcast and newsletter. You can learn more at joinanimalia.com. If the planet and all the life on it had its own podcast, this would be it. Animalia covers a wide range of topics from deep dives into threatened species to regenerative agriculture, to climate migration, to how to spot greenwashing and fashion. You'll be blown away by their incredible guests and always leave more informed and curious than you were going in. So check out this five minute preview from Jay Viraldi's Animalia podcast. And we hope you'll check it out at joinanimalia.com.
4: Welcome to Animalia, where we cover all things conservation, climate justice, and sustainability. This is the five-minute version of our episode, The Badass Woman from Bad River. That badass woman, Philomena Quebec, a member of the Bad River tribe and the larger Anishinaabe community in northern Wisconsin. I met Philomena while producing our four-episode series, The American War on Wolves. She appears in episode four. During that interview, she shared some really fascinating insights into her community's cultural frameworks on the natural world, where humans fit into it and why things have shifted so off balance leading to the climate crisis we're in. So I thought, man, I need to do an entire episode with this badass woman from Bad River. So let's highlight a few of the really interesting philosophies Philomena shared. Remember, go check out the full episode for the complete interview and a much more expansive discussion on these topics.
1: So in the beginning of all of creation, there were there were a number of different things that happened in a specific period of time, you know, in a succession. And we all know this because we've we've, you know, studied science and all that. But as Anishinaabe, we have a bit of a different framework for for how we think about these things and how creation occurred. So there's a there's several different orders of being. There's four different orders of beings. And the first order of beings are the rocks and the water and um all that you know all that goes with that with you know the earth and then the second order of beings are the plant beings and so these are all the different things we see out in the world the grasses and the algaes and the the, the trees the plants that give us fruit and they give us all kinds of things right like oxygen to breathe they create the atmosphere they process that carbon dioxide, and they, they help with those water cycles. And then the third order of beings are the four-legged beings and the the beings that fly and the fish in the water, all those different cellular creatures, everything that we can think of that is like an animal. You know, all those all those kinds of things are in that third order of being. And then finally, we have human beings. That's the fourth order of human of of life. And as an we conceive of these all these, you know, how how creation works as as the human beings being the last created and the most dependent on those other forms of life.
4: And I was surprised at first to hear humans occupying their own order of life from a native point of view. But As we went on to discuss this in much more depth in the full episode, it really started to make sense. Humans do have many unique characteristics, but they also are uniquely vulnerable and uniquely dependent on the first three orders.
1: We have a lot of people in my community who are suffering from substance use disorder and opioid use disorder, and there are plants that are available to help with those kinds of things. And they appreciate being picked for those purposes, especially when you're doing it in a respectful way. And, and they, they will grow even more abundant if they're being used. Those are some of the teachings that we've learned. And these, this, is, this is very different than what you learned from this conservation ethic to touch nothing and leave everything behind just as exactly as you found it. And, you know, that conservation ethic doesn't take into account the fact that these plants have a purpose in life, just like we have a purpose in life as human beings. I want to help people and I want to make the planet better. And these plants do too. And oftentimes they have a medicinal purpose or a nutritional purpose or a decorative purpose and they want to be taken and used for those purposes because that's you know that's the the highest attainment of their life right
0: mm-hmm.
1: is to is to be ingested maybe to be made into a tea in order to help someone to help their grandchild and so we we do those kinds of things and and what our teachers say what my teachers have taught me is that this will spur them to become even more abundant, you know? And, and so this is about the, the natural economy and the economy of abundance. And this idea that we all have a purpose in the world and we all have a, have a desire to, to be used and, and, and to be part of this whole global project on, the, on planet Earth.
4: It's really a beautiful philosophy and challenges the common conservation thinking of avoidance, of leaving the natural world untouched as the best path forward. As Philomena explains, it's quite the opposite. Those first three orders exist to serve us, and we exist to serve them. Philomena and I also dive into the battle going on between her community and the energy company Enbridge over oil pipelines they are building right through the Bad River lands. To transport oil, from Lake Superior down through the Great Lakes states here's an excerpt from that discussion in
1: 1953 th- this was this was a period of time when tribal sovereignty had kind of ebbed to its to one of its low points and the BIA the Bureau of Indian Affairs was in charge of allowing really anything any kind of business operation to occur within our tribes trust lands and so when Enbridge wanted to build its its pipeline, it naturally wanted to go across our reservation because it was just very easy for them to get the approvals. And in fact, our tribal elders and the leadership did not even know that the line was being built until they began hearing the dynamite. So the line was dynamited all the way across our our reservation. So they didn't know this was happening until they started hearing the explosions.
4: I really want to thank Philomena for taking the time to share her powerful perspective. I hope you get a chance to listen to our full discussion. And please support justice for Native people in this country, however you can. One easy way, vote Native people into public representation in your local and state elections. It's good for the planet, which means it's good for you.